When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day. Just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. Before we get stuck in, how about a word from our sponsors? Brooksy, what would you say my defining characteristic was? You, I'm going to stop you there. I'll tell you. It's that <laughs> I love learning stuff. It's true, though. You, you know that that is true. Whenever we record the podcast and we go away and we do our research, Brooksy will come in. I mean, he might have like half a page of notes, but I come in with reams and reams of stuff because I really enjoy learning things, basically. And I just go on these really long kind of deep dives into all subjects. But anyway, this is quite a a long-winded way of saying I'm very excited about this new thing, The Great Courses Plus. And it is unlimited access to learn from the the world's top professors and experts in basically any category you, you care to mention. Even stuff like... Uh, an amazing photographer telling you how to take better photos. All right. The whole gamut of human experience and knowledge is in it. And there's thousands of video and audio lectures to choose from. And you can just, you know, do it in your own time. No no, no pressure. No homework. Just enjoy yourself. And one that I, I really enjoyed is one called Inexplicable Universe with Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson. I mean, he's a big don, to be fair. Huge, huge. Uh, and his Inexplicable Universe um, series of lectures is just all about, you know, science is great mystery. I mean, I'm interested in all this stuff anyway, but I learned quite a lot from within it. So whatever level you're coming in at, you'll like it. So what we're suggesting you do is sign up for The Great Courses Plus today to unlock what is a world of knowledge. And not only that, we've arranged a special limited time offer for for you, the dedicated science-ish listener, a full month of unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures for free. Thank us later. For free. Uh, to get this, you just need to sign up through our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash science. I, I'm fairly confident if you enjoy science-ish, which of course you do, uh, you're going to love this. So, uh, what are you dating like an accountant now? Or? Owen. Ventriloquist? Stop it. You love a dummy. This is not why we're here. You. A rescue op. Save the dinosaurs from an island that's about to explode. What could go wrong? It was all a lie! They're gonna sell them. Not blue. They need it for something else. 
What is that thing? They made it. This is the most dangerous creature that ever walked the earth. Life cannot be contained. Life breaks free. Life finds a way. All around the world, from the savannas of Africa to remote islands in the Pacific, there is a mass extinction brewing. The Earth may be on the verge of another mass extinction, similar, similar to the one that killed the dinosaurs. Since the first species that, that came along, over time, some species emerge, some species become extinct. And those two things are, are totally interlinked. One can't happen without the other. Given currently available records, the current man-made carbon release rate is unprecedented during the past 66 million years. The ecosystem which we need to provide us food, water, air, and habitable climates will have been destroyed. The web of life ripped to shreds. What we choose to do as a species in the next 40, 50, 60 years will have a profound impact on life on Earth for the next 5, 10, 15 million years. We don't get started. We, too, may go the way of the dinosaurs. Are you okay? I'm okay. Hello, and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined, as ever, by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. So in each episode, we take a piece of popular fiction, a novel, play, book. Play? Not a play. Okay, good. Never a play. Good. Uh, and then we examine one big scientific question that that thing raises. Uh, this week, it's my turn, and we're going to be exploring what top dogs, and that's us, us as in humans rather than us, me and you, uh, should be doing now that we've got the rest of the species on planet Earth at our mercy, <laughs> right where we want them. Oh, oh, they're so glad that we were on top, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's an absolute result for them. Uh, and the movie we're going to be tackling is none other than the latest blockbuster. I think you can still watch it at the cinemas now. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Ooh. I know that you've seen it because I know that we both saw it on our own at different Odeons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I Not saw even it. on our own together. No, no. No, no. no I, I was on my own at Camden Odeon on a Saturday night. <laughs> Well, I, I think I can beat you there, because I was Friday afternoon, uh, Odie and Shaftesbury Avenue. I think mine's worse somehow. Because it's Saturday Sat- night. Saturday night. Your location is worse. <laughs> but but my, uh, my timing's bad. Um, I have to say, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I um, did too. Yeah, Pretty basic plot. The dinosaurs on the island are in a bit of trouble because volcanic activity is going to wipe them out, which brings the uh, ethical dilemma... Should we now try and save the dinosaurs? Do we need to get them off the island? So we've we've put them there in the first place, and now they're going to get wiped out. Which you could see as like, phew, that solved the issue. Yeah, or, or- you could think, oh, I'm going to be racked with guilt if this lot die in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how I felt about it, to be honest. There's a bit where they are leaving the island, and it's all like, it, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but the island is absolutely ravaged by fire. <laughs> it's really, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. Um, and you just see a, I guess it's a... Is um, it a Diplodocus? Or, or, or a Brachiosaurus or something. Yeah, one of the, one of the, I think it was Brachiosaurus. One actually. of the big old units, essentially uh, <laughs> getting so, burnt alive. Oh! Yeah, doing... Uh, 
You actually look like one. <laughs> it's a shame that people can't see that. That's a good impression. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's hating it. Um, and I felt quite, I That's, felt bad. Yeah, I felt quite home. bad there. Mm. Yeah. It was nasty. Um, so our big question is how far should we intervene in the ebb and flow of species? Before we cover ourselves in goose fat and dive into the science, though, we just thought, do you know what? Science-ish, up to this point, has never really engaged with the filmmakers. So we sat down and had a chat with this guy. My name is Juan Antonio Bayona, and I am the director of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Hosey! <laughs> yes! <laughs> the director sat down with the director. That's never been offered up to us before, may never get offered up again, but we seize the opportunity. Fallen Kingdom talks about two ideas. One is losing control. And in that sense, presents the Jurassic universe in a way that we've never seen before. We cross all the red lines in this film. And that, that was very exciting from the storytelling point of view. The other theme is empathy. I think that we talk about empathy. We talk about accept what we don't understand. And, and when we talk about that, it's not only about dinosaurs. Once you see the movie, you, know, you will know what I'm talking about. How many can you save? Eleven species. Blue is the last of her kind. You'll never capture her. We thought you might know someone who could help. The relation between Owen and Blue. Hey, Blue. You know me. Blue is the, the last velociraptor alive. The only one that survived Jurassic World. Back your man up right now. And we put a lot of attention and a lot of detail in the relation between Owen and Blue. Hey, girl. You think what I'm thinking? One of the main scenes in the movie takes place in the center, and it's a surgery that we do on Blue. We were working very closely. I wanted to work very closely with a veterinarian, and we talked for hours about anatomy of a velociraptor and what would be the possibilities of having a surgery. And, and we had the bed all the time on set because we wanted to be very specific and very realistic. You need to understand that these movies are not fantasies. Are not fantasy movies. They, they they are grounded. They are based upon real uh, scientific theories that were already in the original book from Michael Crichton. These creatures were here before. So the way these dinosaurs are portrayed, and if we're not careful, on the screen is a hundred percent realistic. They're gonna be here after. Welcome to Jurassic World. We wanted also to have a, an emotion towards them. Blue is alive. You raised her. These animals, you, you create a sense of empathy towards them, but they're dangerous at the same time. They can kill you. Do these animals deserve the same protections given to other species? Or should they just be left to die? And that gives you like a wide range of emotions that makes the whole storytelling a lot more interesting. Popular art is like uh, movies, filmmaking, television. It's a very useful instrument to shake people's mind and, and make them aware of the world we live in. And for me, I, I see the Jurassic stories like moral tales. And you have this part of the, the story that tells you what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do uh, towards science and nature. 
I mean, this guy would absolutely love Science-ish. Well, it's I presume he does history. already, doesn't he? I well, mean, we, d- uh, we didn't actually ask him. I think maybe we'll send him a link. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think it's right up his street. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, when I was watching the film, mm. I was genuinely conflicted about what decision I would make if it was up to me. And it's a it's really interesting questions that it raised. Yeah, 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 they did a good job of it. Yeah. What would you do? So we've got a big question. How far should we intervene in species extinction? So have we pinned down someone big to answer this for us? Of course we have. We've got Dr. James Burrell, who is a conservation biologist from the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Uh, and we started by asking him to paint us a picture of how evolution and, and extinction have played out across geological time. Some call it the panda of the sea. The vaquita porpoise, a relative of the dolphin, is now on the brink of extinction. Species have always become extinct. Since the first species that, that came along, over time, some species emerge, some species become extinct. And those two things are, are totally interlinked. One can't happen without the other. But the thing that's interesting is when that rate of extinction suddenly increases and then suddenly decreases. Non-human life is dying at rates not seen in 60 million years. Scientists are calling it the sixth great extinction. The biggest such event since an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. So One of the kind of commonly banded about figures is that there have been these big five mass extinctions, the most famous of which was the asteroid that potentially wiped out the dinosaurs. But actually, it really depends on what you, what you call a mass extinction, how many things have to go extinct for it to be a mass extinction. It says three-quarters of all species on the planet could disappear in the coming centuries. And there's actually been loads of extinction events throughout history. What's really interesting is after those extinction events, and again, this is sort of current research, this is people are trying to understand these things that happened millions and millions of years ago, but you seem to potentially have all these vacant niches. And so you sometimes get these rapid diversifications where all these opportunities for new types of animals or plants to exist occur after these mass extinction events. And so you get these radiations, these explosions of diversity. So how do you know that species can go extinct? And actually, for most of human history, that that whole concept was a bit alien to us not until actually quite recently that we really came up with this concept of extinction that is actually so important to the whole sort of world of conservation biology as it is now. And it was actually a species quite close to home that really unraveled that whole mystery for us. And that's the Irish elk. So the Irish elk was this enormous, up to sort of three metre tall, huge antlered elk that lived um, in Ireland and across Europe. And throughout the 1800s and 1900s, these enormous sets of antlers Uh, were being dug up from peat bogs. And obviously, clearly, something as big as that was quite spectacular and it generated quite a lot of interest. And people realised that this animal had clearly been living there, but there were enough people in Ireland, there were enough biologists, that surely, if it still existed, people would know about it, people would have seen it. It wasn't like the depths of the Amazon rainforest or, 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 or the Sahara Desert or something like that. And so the fact that they found these remains, but no one had seen the real living animal, really allow people to come to the conclusion that species can come into existence and and species can disappear from existence. Species can become extinct. So since that sort of sudden realisation that 
that species aren't permanent, that species can become extinct. It's almost like biology, ecology, conservation, it's just become increasingly obsessed with this idea that species can become extinct because it, it's like this amazing treasure trove of life on Earth and we're just losing it and there doesn't seem to be anything we can do to stop it. And so extinction, the rate of extinction, uh, the permanence of extinction, that is really what defines this century of, of research in biology. So now we're in this so-called sixth great mass extinction and, and we're kind of to blame. Is that fair? So um, presumably the other ones weren't human. So what happened in the other five? So the definition is when 75% of life disappears. The first one uh, was 439 million years ago and it's called the Ordovician Silurian mass extinction. 86% of life was bumped off due mainly to, so there was uh, glaciation and falling sea levels. Just just by changing sea levels and yeah. changing glaciation? Yeah. Oh, I know. That's got to tell us something. And then the second mass extinction uh, was the late Devonian 364 million years ago, 75% um, of species uh, wiped out. That oh, was so that one just crept in? Just about. I mean, right. it's, it's big, but it's not that big. And that, we think, was due to volcanic activity and also maybe the like huge land plants with very deep roots that were ending up putting nutrients into the sea and thereby creating like these kind of algal blooms that were sort of wiping out other life. Oh. And then 251 million years ago, really the daddy, the Permian-Triassic mass extinction, 96% of life <laughs> wiped out. And that was due to the ocean becoming more acidic and I think huge volcanic eruptions um, all sort of tied together. But it's amazing to think that all of life on Earth now is descended from the 4% that survived that mass extinction. Then you've got the uh, Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction, and that was sort of several phases, really. So you've got massive uh, climate change. I think you've got an asteroid in there as well. And that, that was the thing that paved the way for, for dinosaurs. Before that, mammals were, were more numerous, um, but a lot of mammals were, were wiped out. A lot of niches became available, and the dinosaurs popped up and kind of dominated the Earth for about mm. 130 million years until uh, <laughs> the most famous one, uh, the Cretaceous, the, the KT event, which is the big old asteroid, which created huge volcanic activity, uh, massive climate change. That knocked out 76% of life again, on the planet. Again, just, just, just scraping in, scraping in, and that allowed things like the evolution of sharks in the sea. So right. so not all bad. <laughs> if, uh, if you're a shark. Yeah, and now we're in possibly this, this Holocene mass extinction, although we don't really know. We think that we're currently in a, in a mass extinction, but it's quite hard to say because of the sort of because of the timescales involved. Yeah, because these things last, for, or they can be defined to last as long as you kind of want, in a sense. Yeah, so, so the Triassic, Jurassic was 15 million yeah, years long. Yeah. And if you imagine being in that, quite hard to say that you're in it yeah um to get that kind of perspective so i mean it, it's a pretty difficult science this can we get a good measure of how much damage we're actually doing it's really really hard because <laughs> for various reasons we don't know how many species there are on the planet 
which is <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a basic number. It is quite a basic one, and you, you would like it. I mean, there are estimates, of course, yeah. but they're wildly differing. And you also have very different estimates of the number of species that are going extinct, and they're all done by computer modelling. So the UN, I think, uh, have said it's 150 species a day. Another survey, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, said maybe 24 species a day. But if you look at actually documented losses, it's... 800 in the past 400 years because the the UN's way of measuring it is really strict. It's not um, much, is it? No, that isn't much. But then, you seems can, but then they're saying that they think it's actually 150 species a day. So there's a big disconnect there between what we're actually seeing and what we think might be happening. Um, so it's just about having evidence for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're quite good on vertebrates. But vertebrates only make up 1% of Earth's animal species. Yeah. So it doesn't really tell you that much it's quite hard to extrapolate out from vertebrates what might be happening to invertebrates so how do we get the numbers for the other stuff through various models so there's a guy called gerardo ceballos gerardo. which i think means uh, gerald onions <laughs> yeah, i think in, it does yeah, in yeah. spanish yeah. <laughs> so anyway gerald onions uh, said <laughs> that he reckons that the current global extinction rate is up to a hundred times that of the background rate and so the background rate you think is sort of like nine vertebrate species going extinct every hundred years. And then he he looked at recorded losses since 1900 and there have been 477 vertebrate species have gone. And then he kind of applied that across the whole of nature, which is a pretty... That's a big I mean, extrapolation. That, that's a hell of an extrapolation. And he came up with this thing... But he knows that, that his got, onions. Yeah, oh, horrible. But it got a lot of press because he said it's a hundred times greater than the background rate. You're like, wow. That's yeah, a thing. Yeah. Um, and, and back to the original question of how many species are there, you can get figures that range from like 1.9 million to 100 million. That's that's how much we're guessing. I, I'm feeling like we don't know much. No, we we don't know very much. The the other <laughs> this is my favourite thing. It's sort of slightly um, slightly embarrassing, I think, for biologists. But when you try and count species, double counting and the rest is a, is a real issue. And so people have so effectively you just count the same species in different places in the world, and then you don't really talk to each other, and you think that you have found a new species thing but it's the same one just getting counted again oh, and again that's embarrassing uh, and the best example is uh, there's a sea snail that had 113 different scientific names one snail <laughs> one so, so this is like, one species there's one species of snail 113 different scientific so what are we going to do about that i mean is, is there a lottery is somebody going to say no my name is the best name and we're going to stick with that it's going to be who got there first isn't it or just call it the 113 snail <laughs> snail 113 <laughs> but i mean does it actually matter you know about getting the numbers right yeah i think it does because otherwise how do you plan your conservation efforts how do you measure the success of your conservation efforts um if you don't know how many species there are where they are which ones need protection how it's all fitting into the ecosystem you have to have a baseline otherwise there is no way of measuring success but then we also need to try and work out what the factors driving species to extinction are today and we put that to dr james the current man-made carbon release rate is unprecedented during the past 66 million years climate change is is perhaps the most well-known one we're changing the environment and it's not that the absolute change, it's the drastic rate of change, is, is hard for species potentially to adapt to. 
And today it's happening in a period of fewer than 200 years. The present slash future rate of climate change and ocean acidification is likely to result in widespread future extinctions in marine and terrestrial environments. But it's not just climate change, it's massive amounts of habitat loss. In the heart of Argentina, deforestation is moving full steam ahead. It's massive amounts of over-harvesting, unsustainable over-harvesting. Commercial fishing has dramatically depleted the fish supply, particularly some of the larger fish favoured by restaurants. It's fragmentation of habitats into smaller, more vulnerable pieces. Now, if you were just to think about climate change on its own, if all of our ecosystems were fantastically well-connected, no other pressures, and you just had climate change, they'd be in a good position to try and adapt to it. Life finds a way. Life is very adaptable. If you've got this enormous genetic diversity from large populations, there's more opportunity to adapt to changes. But it's the fact we've got all these pressures sort of piling up on each other. All of these things, all different stresses on a system, make it very, very difficult for life to survive. It's all those cumulative effects that are all coming together to create this kind of perfect storm, which people are calling the sixth mass extinction. So people often say, what can we do about this massive global loss of biodiversity? And actually, there's loads we can do. I think you only have to look at history. We put people on the moon. We've put satellites in orbits. So I think that's the wrong question. I think the most important thing to ask is, you know, what's stopping us? Why, why aren't we doing more? And I think the answer to that is that a lot of people still don't realize there's a problem. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee heard warnings today that a coal-burning society may be making things hot for itself. So I was talking to someone last week, it's very interesting, and they said, climate change. It took 20, 30 years for people to accept that there was a problem. That was the big challenge. The so-called greenhouse effect is created by carbon dioxide, a colorless, odorless gas. And actually, biodiversity loss is kind of in a similar position to climate change was. It's going to take us time for people to really accept and realize what an enormous problem biodiversity loss is. 24 countries agree on Friday to create the world's largest marine park in the Antarctic Ocean. The simplest thing you can do is create protected areas. Now, of course, that's the first step. They need to be enforced, they need to work, they need to be in the right places, they need to work for the long term. One of the big problems we have is that governments, in terms of the, the length of life on Earth, governments and even our, our modern civilization is just so, so short and fleeting. To really protect areas, you need to protect them for 10, 20, 50, 100 years for that really to be sustainable. I think this big problem still is understanding the gravity of the problem that's facing us. I mean, or we could just kind of say, well, this is just natural, isn't it? After all, we're part of evolution. And even if we are causing this mass extinction, you know, we're just kind of there mucking in on the whole thing. I mean, maybe we shouldn't actually worry about extinctions. Yeah, I mean, it's not a hugely popular view. <laughs> um, but I think it was like a year ago, or maybe a bit more, there's a, a guy called Professor Alex Pyron, who works at uh, George Washington University, who wrote a piece in the Washington Post that argued we don't need to save endangered species because extinction is just part of evolution. It's like extinction is, is the engine of evolution. It's, it's the way that natural selection gets rid of poorly adapted species and equally allows the ones that are well adapted to flourish. Um, and I imagine everyone said, oh, Professor Alex, that's a brilliant argument. Well, 
it's, honestly, it's worth googling googling the piece because it is interesting. Uh, but what's more interesting is the vitriol that <laughs> followed. People went absolutely mental about it because um, his thing was the only stuff that we should try and protect is the stuff that directly benefits humanity. Right. Like, that's the only thing we should be trying to do. Yeah. Um, because if you look at it on big geological timescales, pretty much everything that we see around us is going to go extinct, probably including us, and it will be replaced by other life. Unless we literally denude the entire planet of life, <laughs> life will just spring back up again right. and evolve into new forms and so on. And that's just part of the natural cycle. And the reason that we sort of get fixated on on not uh, accelerating that maybe is that we just struggle to think in in those time frames yeah we just can't really imagine oh it's okay in five million years time the earth will be repopulated with it might not have tigers but it'll have something similar that occupies that niche um and that's and that's fine it's just the natural order i mean is it okay to ask you know what is the point of conservation yeah i think it is okay to ask that the the reasons that people kind of disagreed with what he said are quite numerous but some of the points were that he's talking about this mass extinction as if it is like all of the others which it isn't because it's being driven by a sentient creature the fact that we can we can think about it and decide whether to take action transforms this we have agency in a way that there wasn't agency the dinosaurs couldn't turn around and do anything differently they weren't yeah. able to. We are. And then the other thing is that there might not be the same sort of recovery after this mass extinction because of the nature of it, because we are stripping away habitat and, and leaving, you know, if you think about the stuff that we're interested in protecting, so like cows and sheep and like farming, it's really quite narrow. It's sort of monocultures yeah. um, that aren't going to necessarily produce diversity. So... If, you, if you're destroying natural ecosystems in the way that we are doing it, there isn't the guarantee of flourishing life afterwards. Right. Um, and we also just are in danger of just getting rid of stuff that is very useful to us. Even if you take a very kind of selfish sort of anthropocentric view, there's lots of plants and stuff that will provide us with medical cures that we might just wipe out, which we wouldn't want to do. So isn't all this going to be hugely expensive, all this conservation? It's like pluck a figure from nowhere, effectively. But there was a study in 2012 that thought it would cost about £49 billion a year if you were going to try and preserve all threatened land animals. And if you are going to try and save endangered marine species, it's going to cost a, a, an awful lot more. So, it, yeah, it's expensive. All right, so, so we're talking about a lot of money, but presumably, you know, we'll actually save ourselves some money by doing all this in the long run, won't we? Yeah, so again, this is difficult stuff to get your head around, but there have been estimates of this kind of the value of ecosystem services to the entire planet. And in 1997, a guy called Robert Costanza reckoned that the biosphere services to us were of greater value than the entire global economy. And so if you invest to conserve biodiversity, it will bring benefits that are like 100 times greater than the costs. So therefore, letting species decline and go extinct just feels like it's probably quite a bad move. A 2010 yeah. study reckoned that if you just allowed species to, to go extinct unchecked, you'd wipe 18% off global economic output 
by 2050. I mean, I think all of these numbers you take with a pinch of salt, but the sense is there is, if you if you just want to be selfish, it is a value to humans to keep biodiversity um, maintained. What do you mean exactly by ecosystem services? So it's kind of what is being provided by the natural world that we need, that if it wasn't there, we'd have to create systems to... to to provide it at great expense. So if you imagine us humans not on Earth in a spaceship or whatever, so no plants, there's nothing releasing oxygen, so you have to make your own oxygen. So then you have to have some sort of machine that's doing that. It's also going to have to make you water. Already your costs are starting to mount up. There's nothing to eat, so you're going to have to artificially make food and you can synthesise various stuff. Not very appetising, but you can. But you sort of see all of these things add up quite considerably um and it is easier just to let the natural world do it like it's there doing it yeah i mean it's a bit like if you own a factory and say oh i don't want to spend money maintaining my machines yeah and you might save you know quite a bit of money in the first couple of years and then all of a sudden you're up shit creek because your machine stopped working i mean it's a long-term investment isn't it yes exactly which unfortunately governments tend to be quite blind over because governments know they're never in power for long enough What we choose to do as a species in the next 40, 50, 60 years will have a profound impact on life on Earth for the next 5, 10, 15 million years. So the decisions we make, the species that we fight to keep in existence and the species that we don't care about and slip to extinction, that will have such a profound impact on on the web of life, you know, for the rest of time on Earth. The future's going to be difficult because we have a growing population that wants to live to a higher standard. That means things like more meat, using more water, using more resources, having more technology that needs to be mined out the ground. But I think you have to be hopeful as well because never in the history of humanity have we had such a comprehension of our impact. You know, for most of our time as a species we've just been living aware of our immediate surroundings but now all of a sudden we have this awareness of this responsibility as as earth's custodians one of the sort of new developments in conservation is this whole idea of de-extinction it's whether we could perhaps freeze the cells of animals or we could sequence their genomes and then at some point in the future we could bring them back we could bring them back from the dead it's like it's lazarus species and that's actually caused a huge amount of debate. There's a whole sort of side of conservation that's fiercely opposed to that because they think that all of a sudden, if, if you can just bring a species back, then all of the money will just drop out of conservation. You could kind of imagine this situation where someone's coming along and they're saying, oh, you know, I'm going to build this development and, oh, but it might wipe out the last of the Amur leopards, but it's okay, I've got 10 of them in my freezer... Let's not worry about it. And, and that's really simplified, but you, you can see where that kind of argument's going. And that's, that's something that's got conservationists really worried. One thing people will often ask is, if there have been 5, 10, 15 mass extinctions or major extinctions, then does this so-called sixth mass extinction, the ones that potentially humans are causing, does it really matter? And you could say to them, you could say, no, it doesn't really matter. Because after mass extinction events, you, you get these diversification of species. Species come back. And if you look at the fossil record, it's, it's a bit difficult, it's a bit tricky to tell, but it seems to only take five or ten million years. 
And so if you're willing to wait around for five or 10 million years for a lot of this life on Earth to come back, then it's no problem. But I think humanity's working on a much shorter timescale than that. So we're really making a bit of a mess of the place, aren't we? Essentially, yeah. I mean, if you look at, and this is massively um, popularised by Blue Planet, but in the oceans, animals are just eating up our shit. They're just eating plastic. Um, And there's been quite a lot of research done now as to why exactly that is happening. Because I think uh, initially you might think, well, that's a bit stupid. Uh, Why are you eating plastic? But it seems that sometimes plastic smells, sounds, if you're using echolocation, feels like food. So they're actively almost seeking it out. So you might think that a little, like, ball of plastic is like a tasty fish egg, for example. Yeah. Um, And so, so much of this is being ingested by so... And particularly if you're like a sort of filter feeder, then if the particles are the right size, it's just coming in. Yeah. And then, you know, you have have seagulls and albatrosses, like, picking up bits of plastic that they they just associate with with food because it it smells or, or looks like food and then feeding it to their young um and then you know things like mussels and 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 lobsters are consuming an enormous amount of plastic like i think something like a third of uk caught fish have plastic in their guts you know it, it's oh. a mind-bogglingly awful situation it is really depressing. Is there anything we can do to kind of change all this? Yeah, there's there's a few steps. I mean, the first one is a really obvious one to do with fossil fuels. We need to start burning fossil fuels in the next twenty years. That's which I think everyone kind of kind of knows. Um, the Koch brothers maybe not so not so into <laughs> that. But and then the other thing which uh, Dr. James mentioned is this idea of just putting aside n- nature reserves. Right, just yeah, protecting yeah. huge areas. And we're talking like try and protect half of all the land and half of all the oceans and just have them like we we don't touch them. We just let them let them be. Obviously, it's trickier with, with the oceans, but with land, it's certainly possible. But it's, I mean, that's a massive increase on, you know, what is currently protected. But if you did do that, you'd save, you know, something like, you know, over 80% of species that are endangered would be would be protected by something wow. like that. We have to fight illegal wildlife trafficking. It's still a massive, massive industry. Like in terms of the, the net sort of global worth of that industry, it's not far off the, the, the illegal drugs industry. Like it's Whoa. huge. So is there any reason to think that we can actually make a difference? Should we be optimistic about what we can achieve if we decide to turn this around? Yeah, there's there's enough examples where positive stuff is is happening. So you can look at like the deforestation in the in the Amazon and just feel quite depressed and like, well, I don't know what we do about that. But then the flip side is that in in China back in 2002, they started reforesting like 5% of their of the area, so the size of California. And that it can be done, that you, you can recreate forests. I mean, apart from anything else, like on the one hand, you're creating a uh, habitat for, for animals and what have you, but you're also influencing like the water cycle, stopping the encroachment of, of desert, all these other kind of problems that, that are attendant to deforestation. Uh, and that, that's gone pretty well. Something like the American bison was hunted down to, there was about 750 of them left. And then 
through conservation initiatives and population management, now there's about 300,000 of them. All right. Yeah. Um, Good work. There is some cause for hope. Yeah. All right. So let's have a rundown of the question. Um, How far should we intervene in the ebb and flow of species? I think we should intervene quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, we've been passively intervening, yeah. haven't we, in a negative sense. Yeah. So it makes sense to actively try mm-hmm. and redress that, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, biodiversity um, is really important, benefits us in, in myriad ways. The numbers aren't clear, but we are definitely seeing a big increase in, in extinction rate at the moment, and it's being caused by us. But there are measures that we can that we can take and that we should take. Okay. And I mean, it's weird how it, it, well that's reflected at the end of the film, by the way. The, um, you know, the pressing the red button. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The active intervention. Would you have pressed the red button? Hmm. I think, yeah, I think I, I think I am actively intervening and hitting the red button. Are you? Yeah, I think so. Are you not? No. I, I think I wouldn't have hit the red button. Why? Because maybe I don't need a fourth film. Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. Producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer Manley. Special thanks to Dr. James Burrell and Juan Antonio Bayona. like the show please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast thank you very much it does help you can also find us on twitter at science underscore ish i think i'd kill the dinosaurs of course you would <laughs> uh, if only to make room for a whole uh, island full of babies, babies exactly <laughs> kill the dinosaurs move in the babies <laughs> Would you wait until the volcano had calmed down? Or no, it'd be interesting to see on? how they react to that, wouldn't it? I think I'd have a very, uh, strong hunch how they might react to it. Well, you know, do they move towards the fire or away from it? I we don't know don't until really, we do the experiment. I think they don't really have a choice on the basis it's going to move towards them quite quickly. <laughs> they might say, oh, pretty, and move towards it. Or maybe they'd feel the heat. I mean, I guess they'll feel the heat and move away. Anyway, all hypothetical, obviously. Yeah, we're not actually going to do that. A friend is someone that can still help you even when they can't be there in person, like with the friendly new Bank of Ireland third level current account. With it, you get a debit card that's biosourced and actually made from 82% corn. How cool is that? And you can also partner it up with your phone to use Apple Pay to buy things, even if you don't have your card on you. You can apply for your friendly new third level current account in just six minutes at bankofireland.com forward slash student. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.